Hi, this is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, brought to you by UBS. In recent years, fashion designer Jonathan Anderson has come to be considered one of London's more active young art collectors, and he now serves on the board of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Having established his own label, J.W. Anderson, in 2008, the Irish-born designer was approached in 2013 by French luxury giant LVMH to take over the direction of Leuve, the 150-year-old label first founded in Spain. In addition to making the heritage brand much more contemporary, Anderson also chose to emphasize the artisanship that underpinned its history, and he established the Leuve Craft Prize in 2016. That move reflects Anderson's view that the line between art, fashion, and craft is much more fluid than most people think, and that the next generation of cultural consumers really don't see clear lines between these creative domains. My conversation with Jonathan was wide-ranging, and that's no surprise, since he's someone who has both a deep appreciation for Renaissance painting and highly incisive views on today's social media. He talked to me, for example, about how viral image sharing is outstripping the speed with which creators can invent new looks and pointed to the dangers of what he calls recreational outrage. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If so, please review and favorite Intersections wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Jonathan Anderson, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit, since this is a podcast, about where you are. Where am I? I'm actually sitting in my kitchen right now. <laughs> it's the quietest place that I have in my life at the moment. Yeah, in the kitchen. It's usually where I spend most of my time, actually. Let's take it back to the beginning. You grew up in Northern Ireland during what is known as the Troubles, the very difficult period in Northern Ireland's and England's history. And I'm curious to what extent that felt normal, to what extent it felt surreal and to what extent it shaped who you are today growing up in in ireland i was born in 84 i was a youth during the 90s which was probably one of the most complicated moments it was kind of normal i know that sounds a very strange thing to say but i was used to going to a checkpoint as you go to school checking underneath your car i remember going to school one day and a street being there and the next day the street not being there I don't know, when you're young, you kind of get used to many things. I don't know. Did it affect me? I think it maybe toughened me a bit. When you see that kind of thing where you grow up or you see chaos and tragedy in that way, you sometimes build a bit of a shell, I find. Maybe that softened as I get older. The more that I work in a creative field, the more I start to realize that in a subconscious way, it's done something to me. I never take anything for granted because I always feel like anything can disappear quite quickly. Your father was a national team rugby player, but what I read is that your grandfather was someone who delivered patterns for liberty. It's easy to look at that and say, how different were these men and what impact did they have on where you are today? And I'm curious how you see that in your family background and your mother as well. Well, my father was captain of the Irish rugby team. He played for Ireland and coached Ireland and Scotland and London Irish. Most of my childhood was surrounded around sport, going to rugby matches. My mother was an English teacher, so that was probably the grounding part. My grandfather worked for a company called Lamonts, which were a big printing company in Northern Ireland that printed all the fabrics for Liberty and camouflage for the army. So I think my grandfather probably in terms of creativity is probably where I got this idea of 
Like my grandfather was very into collecting early English ceramics and early English furniture. That probably rubbed off in terms of being aware of aesthetics. And Ireland is not really, when I was growing up, art was not really, you know, there was the Ulster Museum. There wasn't many museums. My grandfather had this thing of definitely of taste, like he was very, very, very fussy character and very opposite to my dad because my dad uh, grew up on a farm and then ultimately went to go and play rugby. They're kind of like, in a weird way, two opposing types of people. But deep down, I think how they are kind of similar. And I think what it's had an effect to me is incredibly driven. For him to play for the national team in late 70s, early 80s was quite an achievement from where he grew up in the type of background. You're thought of in the fashion world as a wunderkind, as someone who emerged quite quickly and was successful quite quickly. But it was interesting to note in my research that you were actually first an actor and that you were a good enough actor that you went to Washington, D.C. to act in the Shakespeare Theater Company there. You auditioned at Juilliard. So tell us about this fling with acting. <laughs> when I was younger, I was very into theater. I was in the National Youth Music Theater and I was in the National Youth Theater. And it was a bit of an escape mechanism. And it was something that yeah, I considered enough to go to study it in DC. But I think it ultimately was something, this idea of, I've always been fascinated by character building, this idea of imaginary characters, which I think in a weird way, when I look at my work today, I think if I hadn't have gone to drama school, I don't think I would be able to produce the collections I do today. For me, it's about living and breathing this character for one season and then turning it into some sort of visual language. But no, I stepped away from it because I felt like I was never going to be good enough. <laughs> Growing up where you did in rural Ireland, what was your connection to the fashion world? Because this was before a lot of stuff was online, before social media, certainly. How did you acquire knowledge and interest and engage with fashion? I think the only way that I was able to get visuals on fashion was through the Sunday Times supplements, which would have come on a Sunday. And in it was the Style magazine. The first thing that I remember, I remember it very well in terms of when I found fashion just mesmerizing was when Alexander McQueen had done this ice show. They had two twins and it was like a piece of theater. Since that moment, I became increasingly obsessed about it. I think as well, probably there was an aspect of gender or queerness that I quite liked that was not existing in Ireland, that there was something sort of extravagant in this idea of dressing that you would not have had when most of my childhood was in sportswear. Everyone I hung out with wore sportswear. That was all everyone wore. So it was something that I just found mesmerizing with this idea that someone would dress in this way. And did you dress in this way? No. <laughs> Not for a long time. There was a moment, probably in America, you call it TJ Maxx. There was a moment where in Ireland, TK Maxx came, where it was end-of-line clothing. I discovered this in early teens, and I remember becoming completely fascinated finding Jean-Paul Gaultier jeans that were probably the style that never sold, but it was the only thing that was available. <laughs> so, you go to Washington, you come back, and then tell us about your path into the fashion world. Well, I came back from DC. I had probably spent every student loan that there was ever possible to get and every credit card that there was. And then my parents were like, well, you're going to have to get yourself out of this. So I started working at a department store called Brown Thomas. And while working there, I met the assistant 
to Manuela Pavese, who was the creative consultant for Prada. He was like, if you ever come to London, I'm sure we can give you a job. I, at this stage, had not applied for university. I had no inkling of going to London. I then decided that, okay, well, maybe I should apply for art school. So I applied to every single art school, didn't get into any of them, bar one day I had a phone call from <laughs> the London College of Fashion saying that they were starting a menswear course and that they had loads of places and that if you wanted a place, you could have one. <laughs> so I decided to go to London College of Fashion to study menswear. And then after being in London for about a year, I went into Prada one day and I met Walter, who was this guy, and Manuela Pavese was there. And she said, would you like a job? And she was like, can you visual merchandise this wall? And then I worked there for two years doing windows as well as going to university. So it kind of helped balance out <laughs> paying off a lot of student debt. And then relatively soon thereafter, you launched your own label. A lot of people work for a long time. They work within big houses and then they eventually launch their own. But I mean, you were pretty quick through the gate. Tell us a little bit about the growth, first of your own label and then of your working with Lueve. Yeah, well, I had my brand for about eight years. Menswear is what really took off for my own brand. It was a collection that I had done, which was these sort of ruffled shorts and knee-high boots and bustiers. And it was really looking at this idea of the shared wardrobe this idea that instead of looking at gender or looking at class systems, it was kind of looking at this idea of archetypes that anyone could go to a wardrobe and try on something and they could feel whatever they wanted. They could be whatever they wanted to be. I think it was a turning point. It was a collection that kind of solidified who I was in hindsight. And then after building my brand, I did a stint at Versus for Versace for a year. And then I was approached by um, Delphine Arno, who works for LVMH, or is the daughter of Bernard Arno. And she was interested in taking a minority stake in my own brand. I was very, very lucky that this happened. And as I was completing on selling part of my brand, Delphine asked me to go to the factory of Loewe because they were looking for a creative director and would I be interested. I went to the factory of Loewe and fell head over heels in love with it. And I'm still here today. So what does it mean to be the creative director of a brand today compared to what your predecessors did? You've used the term curator, which I think obviously the art world sort of considers its own. When I joined Loewe, I wanted to turn it into a cultural brand. This was my fantasy of Loewe, for example, that it could be this platform that could interact with craft or the arts or dance or film, and that you could, in a weird way, cross-pollinate it so that you've removed hierarchies. For me, this idea of curating within a house that is not yours, Loewe started in 1846, for me was an interesting way of trying to keep newness within a brand and make it feel part of what was actually happening around the brand. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at ubs.com slash collecting. 
And now back to the show. Can you give some examples of that? Well, I remember at the very beginning, I spent a year researching the brand before I actually put anything out there. I then came up with this idea that everything that we would do in Loewe would be about this idea of past, present, and future. And it would look to the idea of historical referencing, the idea of how do you distill that within its time period, and what can it mean for the future? One of the things that's striking in the fashion world is... On the one hand, there's a constant search for inspiration and referencing of past and present topics, aesthetics, et cetera. On the other hand, I think in the last few years, there's been a lot of finger pointing around someone else did it first, or this is cultural appropriation. And I'm curious, is this something that you think about or try not to think about? What are your views on this? Because it seems to come up sort of every, <laughs> yeah. every fashion week, there's someone who says, oh, this was copied from some designer that did it three years ago. Yeah, I feel like fashion has, in a weird way, entered this very strange moment of recreational outrage. If you imagine how many fashion shows happen every fashion week, and they're happening four times a year, there is always going to be crossovers. The way in which I've entered it is I don't want ownership over things. My whole thing is that when you birth creativity, you give it out and you move on. And you take the world that you have around you and you reinterpret it through your narrative or your own, as long as you're open about it. And now I feel that we're in this very kind of like blame game, which I think becomes kind of productive in terms of creativity, because it's very hard to difficult to get forward by getting trapped into this very strange dialogue. If you look at the bag, the bag has been going for two, three thousand years. You're trying to reinvent something quite subtly each time. And I don't know, I have a very weird relationship with it. Part of me doesn't care. But then at the same time, I feel like we live in a society now that kind of enjoys the hunt of it, which is fascinating to me as well. I remember being in Madrid and I remember seeing a Titian and a Rubens beside each other, both of Adam and Eve, very, very similar, nearly identical paintings. And this idea that one looked to the other to learn. I always get quite jealous of art in that way because I feel like there is a creative freedom in the idea of referencing the past in that way. Brock and Picasso during their Cubist period make paintings that are very hard to differentiate from each other. And of course, there are many examples of that. Going broader, I think one of the interesting things you've done, especially at Lueve, is to embrace craft. For a lot of people, craft is seen as lower than fashion, which is lower than art. And it seems like you've blown up these hierarchies. And in fact, you even set up Lueve Craft Prize. And I'm curious how you see the relationship between craft, art, and fashion. Well, the reason why I set it up was really a personal thing. It's something I collected or I still collect. I think sometimes people forget with luxury brands that People make these things. We have fifth generation, sixth generation people who master craftsmen, people who are able to construct a bag. And I think because we have this jaded version of what fashion can be, we forget about the product that is actually made by people. And it's actually an incredibly skilled job. So there was a linkage there. And at the same time, there was a link to me ultimately in that I've been collecting ceramics now for 20 years. And some of my dearest friends are ceramicists, and it's something that I find absolutely fascinating compared to any other art form. I, for me, ceramics have always had this, I think because of my grandfather collecting it, and I just find that 
was something that I wanted to build a platform for that was able to give more exposure to something that I just felt was sculptural and was doing just as much as what contemporary art was doing. So that's a good segue to one of the reasons that you're on this podcast, which is that you are considered within the fashion world to be one of the more serious collectors around. And I'm curious, how did you start collecting? What was the first piece? What were the first pieces? Where did it all begin? It started when I first moved to London. I remember reading, picking up a magazine, which was a craft magazine, and it was talking about Lucy Ree, the Austrian ceramicist who moves to Britain. I became completely obsessed by her. Then I remember going to the Victoria and Albert Museum and to go and see the work. And then I realized that I couldn't afford to buy it. So then I moved on from it. I used to go to a ceramic place. I still go to a gallery across the road from the British Museum. And I remember going in one day and there was this amazing pot, a striped pot in kind of black and white. And it was by a British ceramicist called John Ward. Because I couldn't buy Lucy Ree, but I wanted to buy British contemporary ceramics, I started to buy his work. And then buying his work, I started buying Edmund Duval's work there, which used to be able to buy pots and small teapots and things. And then from that, I just started to pick up things at auctions. So at the very beginning, it was primarily ceramics because it's what I could afford. And it became an addiction, like all collecting. And what's amazing about it is that ceramics are very interconnected. You can historically buy, you can buy contemporary, or you can buy historical and contemporary, and then look at the connections. A lot of what I collect is what is happening right now and how that might sit beside something that may have happened in the past, you know, Mm -hmm. and this idea of dialogues. It's interesting because in fashion, I think people think of you as a very contemporary person, but you've regularly cited the deposition from the cross by Jacobo Pantormo as your favorite work. Why is that? How do you see that in relationship to the way in which as a designer, you need to constantly be in the now or even in the future. What I love about that painting is that it is so contemporary. The colors are insanely contemporary. If you were to go to Basel and see that on a stand, you would be like, great, I'll take it. It's one of those paintings that transcends time. Obviously, it's a a Renaissance masterpiece. But there is something about the modernity in that painting that I find just so remarkable. I understand that museums have to be laid out in certain ways and you put all ironwork together and you put all the ceramics together and you put all the paintings together and, and you do it in different kind of time zones and different periods. When I start to look or when I am teaching or when I'm doing workshops or I'm being interviewed with younger people, I start to realize that I don't think younger people work in this way anymore. I think people want to be able to tell that a piece of ironwork from the 14th century is just as important as the Picasso. You kind of need to put them together. And I feel like younger people are working more in a patchwork of imagery. So I feel like museums over the next 20 years have got a lot of different things that they're going to have to do to be able to keep engagement with the younger audience. And I think it's going to be about how do you find modernity in something which maybe people are no longer interested in, like 18th century needlework or damask or these things that maybe are not the most popular thing to go to see at a museum, but are incredibly modern. 
Talk to me about the pace of the fashion world and the pace of the world in general and what it means to be a creative within that frenzy. It's great, but at the same time, I think we are in a very dangerous part at the moment. And I don't think this is only just in fashion. I think this is in art and film and dance. What's happening, the audience is moving at a speed that I've never seen. People consume imagery in a way or fashion has become part of popular culture, it never in such a massive way, that by the time that people have visually seen it, they consumed it, they have already spat it out. So to keep the stimulus, there's a lot of fuel to put in it. By collecting art or being very curious about art and obviously working in fashion, there is similarities. And I've seen it with painters where you have painters who are incredibly popular and then suddenly it's the next painter and the next painter. It can be kind of a dangerous thing because ultimately we end up in a thing where we are just consuming the imagery instead of actually experiencing the imagery. There's this traditional saying, which is the harder they come, the harder they fall. But it's also sort of the faster they come, the faster they fall. Yeah. You've talked about the dangers of popularity. Is this the thing that you've actively tried to avoid? Have you ever said that you sort of avoid becoming too popular because of the dangers of popularity? Yeah, for me, it's about kind of on and off switch. Sometimes I feel like if something getting too popular, then I'd like to dial it down a bit. We have it in product. If product becomes too popular, then it gets consumed too quickly and then it's over. So it's about supply and demand, but at the same time, you're trying to pull the brakes back on it a bit. Because even for myself, you know, I find it sometimes a bit overwhelming when you do interviews and interviews, you do shows and shows, and suddenly you feel completely lost within the creative process that you don't even know how to get out of it. So sometimes I retreat and then come back again to prevent myself from doing the same thing over and over again. I think you were probably part of the last generation that grew up not in their screens from the day they could basically read. And a lot of the people you're selling to and a lot of people you work with, of course, are truly digital natives in the sense that they've never lived a life that wasn't to some degree in their screens. And I'm curious if you feel there's a kind of generation gap there, bigger than perhaps the generation gaps that we saw in the past. Yeah, because technology, as much as it has brought us closer, it has somehow within the generation fractured it. I find this in my job a lot where the media is moving so fast that you are trying to keep up with the way in which you either sell a product or deliver the product to market. And by the time you've done that, the generation has gone so much further ahead that you're already old-fashioned before the minute you've even put it out. So there's a lot of this odd tension that's happening because I think we have a technology that is moving faster than the creativity which then you have a younger generation that has the bandwidth as they're so used to looking at the screen, they are able to move faster and ditch it quicker. <laughs> so you're in this very odd feeling of trying to be, yes, I want to engage with the younger consumer. But at the same time, there comes a moment where you're going, I am totally confused now because last week it was this and this week it's that. And then if you look at the East, it's a different thing. It's very different. In fashion, we're dealing with so many different countries and you're trying to make this one piece of language fit for everything, even though the different generations within those countries are moving at phenomenal rates. So it becomes a bit like chasing your own tail sometimes, actually. You mentioned Asia as a different mindset 
and I have the impression that at least before the pandemic, you spent a lot of time there. Do you think that the ways in which the relationship between fashion, art, and craft are perceived as different in Asia? 100%. If I even look at when I have worked with art or when I have worked with craft and things, there is, we like to segment things in the West. We like to go, architects are here, the contemporary artist is here, the ceramicist is here, the fashion designer is here. Over the last eight years of being at the Weve and working with my own brand and working around the world, you start to realize that art and fashion are not so far away anymore in parts of the world. Because ultimately, and this may sound very crass, but now <laughs> fashion and art are luxury goods. It is about the 1%. And this is where I feel that there is a value system that's put on these things, which I think social media social platforms have enhanced. So when we go to the museum and we take a picture of the Picasso, it says something about us. When we go to the art fair and we find contemporary painter, we post it on our Instagram, it says something about us. Just as much as then sitting at the coffee shop with the Louis Vuitton bag or the Loewe bag or the Prada bag with an espresso, what does that say about you? This is where everything has changed because ultimately we took a picture of the picture and then the picture had a value. So in a weird way, the reason probably why fashion and art has had a seismic growth is because the audience became bigger and it was able to say, here is a visual currency to say who you are. You've said in the past that people used to want to be leaders, now what they want is to have followers. And what you're talking about there is basically people thirst trapping for followers rather than trying to stake out an avant-garde position. It used to be that people were judged on the degree to which people didn't get what they were saying because that indicated that they were somehow in the future avant-garde. And now what you're talking about is a completely different equation for how people establish and judge status. Yeah, this is something that I'm becoming so increasingly obsessed by because I feel like we are living through this incredible social moment, which is incredibly bizarre. Because when I look to my heroes, I like the eccentric. I want the person who says the wrong thing and I want to be able to forgive them and move on. I want them to have outrageous opinions. I want them to paint things that should never have been painted. Nowadays, we are petrified because we've all been given our own newspaper to talk from, our own social platform to air our opinions. We are now self-censoring to the point where we would rather dodge controversy because we want to be liked. Because if we are liked, we have more followers and we are nicer people. What that means for creativity for the future, I have no idea. For me, the artist is the most exciting person in the social ecosystem because they should be allowed the freedom to be able to tackle the things that we can't. The great thing about society is we will sort ourselves out in the end. Our last two questions, the ones that we ask everybody. What is the first artwork that you remember seeing? The first artwork that I remember as a painting on a wall was a show in Ireland when I was very, very, very young. And it was by an Irish painter called Basil Blackshaw. And it was an entire room of paintings of window frames. <laughs> I thought, I will never forget it. 
it was just this amazing moment where I was like, so these are window frames and it is art. And it was this weird realization that art could be something else. It's so interesting because so many of our guests, in response to this question, often cite an artwork that gave them a sense that art could be more than what they thought it was. And the last one, what is the artwork that most recently moved you? <sighs> Ooh, it's a very difficult one. I just recently got back from Naples. And when I was in Naples, I was going at the Bosco and I was looking around. There was this amazing painting by Salviati of a guy wearing a black cap. There was something I found that I was at the painting for about 20 minutes because it was nearly like I had gone out the night before and I had seen so many people drinking and Italian men. There was something kind of magical about this moment that you could nearly be as attracted to the man in the picture as you could be on the man on the street. And it was sort of interesting to feel like the person was alive or something. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. That was thank you. wonderful. <laughs> Appropriately broad-ranging. Broad-ranging, um, as always. Yes. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.